Hey y'all, welcome to Best Virginia, the podcast where we talk about the fascinating history, culture, and folklore of the wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. You got shot, you got stabbed, you lost everything that you had. There ain't no time to wonder why, but to hang your head and cry. Welcome to another episode of Best Virginia Podcast. With me today, I have my wife, Chelsea, and today we have the opportunity to interview the one and only Patch Adams here representing the Gesundheit Institute, um, which is based out of Hillsboro, West Virginia. So, Patch, thanks for coming on to the show today, and it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, so if you don't care for those who might not know too much about you, uh, do you care to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm 76 years old. I grew up an army brat, mostly overseas from 54 to 61 in Kaiserslautern, Germany. My father was stationed, then he died, and we moved back to my mother's state of Virginia. And uh, that was 1961. And, you know, it wasn't a time for me to fit in. One could say that I'm probably a hippie that I'm a, a full nonviolent radical. I mean, I'd like to think that I wouldn't defend myself. And uh, I went to GW University, got in medical school after three years and graduated in uh, 1971. You know, I didn't fit in to medical school. The people were thinking about how much money they were gonna be making, about how short their interviews were. And there was a lot of kissing of butts and formal relationship between professors and students. And none of that was me. I'm a nerd. I didn't have to study very much. So I spent my life there trying to think, well, what kind of doctor do I want to be if I am not going to be their kind of doctor? So the first thing that came up was free. So I've been a free doctor for over 50 years. Another very quick clarity was I need more time with a patient. The whatever 7.8 minutes or less with a patient, I like three to four hours for my initial interview. And since it's free, I can demand it. It was a time of experimental medicine and normally doctors welcomed only allopathic medicine, but it was very easy to welcome chiropractors, but we were also welcoming acupuncture and homeopathy and naturopathy, Ayurvedic, anthroposophic medicine. And uh, 
alternative lifestyles was very big at this time. And so I started a commune. 12 to 20 adults moved into a six bedroom house and said we were a hospital open 24 seven. We had 500 to 1000 people in our home each month with five to 50 overnight guests a night. It was hugely fun. We created, a, people called us the zanies because our behavior was funny and engaging. And I love the practice of medicine. I'm a family doctor. I did one year of residency at Georgetown, 71, 72, but I realized I'm, I'm not their kind of doctor and that I was already felt confident in being, quote, a family doctor. So that's what I became. I grew up mostly overseas, so I, I'm not a person who feels nationality very strongly. And my library's 40,000 books, no John Grisham or Danielle Steele, a huge amount of great literature, history, and nature. And yeah, I'm, I've done yoga, weightlifting, and aerobics for 45 years. I'm fit and healthy. And to tell you the truth, nothing I study says there will be people in a hundred years that we will be extinct. It will com combine with climate change problems and the fact that humans are so arrogant, they think they're a special species and we're just one of the species of animal. And the arrogance is destroying us. So yeah, when we closed our hospital, and this was sometime around the 80s because I got publicity. I had refused publicity before, but then I'm fundraiser, so I went public and have lectured in 82 countries and every state many times. For 30 years, I was on the road 250 to 300 days a year to those places. And we bought the land, we own it, we don't owe any money. We're building a 40 bed rural primary care health center where 120 staff people will live as a communal eco village. And it'll be a fully operating farm, an artist colony and uh, a goofy place. Oh, I should say this, with, within a year of not seeing patients, I realized I need to do care. And so I started our clown trips and we did seven to nine a year to pretty much every continent. And, and I, uh, since COVID, I've not done them, but it looks like things are picking up and so whoopee. Elaborate a little bit on what the the clown trips look like because that's kind of you know I think your token your signature look as far as you know in the movie and your book so what kind of led to that and what does that look like now as you travel and do that well probably 40 
five or more years ago, I decided to only wear clown clothes. So you see my shirt. This is my pants. In this pocket, I have a whoopee cushion, a face <laughs> knot. Uh, I have uh, other things. And uh, I'm a nut. <laughs> I estimate 10,000 deathbeds as a clown. I've held, I'm sure, 3,000 children the week they died of starvation. We've taken clowns into war five times. And yeah. Wow. We're nuts. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Thanks for um, kind of giving us a little bit of overview about you. I, you gave us a lot of really good information there. And you said a couple of things that really jumped out to me. I don't know if Derek mentioned this to you, but my wife is a nurse practitioner and I'm a psychologist. A lot about your journey. I've, we spent a lot of time reading and, you know, we watched the movie, read the book, read what we could find about you online. Uh, just because you appeal to both of us, I think, in in different in a lot of different ways, and some of the same ways as well. It fits into the show because the because uh, Gazuntide is based in West Virginia. But as a you know as a psychologist, I'm interested in what you do uh, as far as your interactions with people, and because that's a huge component of what I do, um, and a lot of what you do as well. Well, it might interest you. I've in over 50 years, I've never given a psychiatric diagnosis or a psychiatric medicine. Publicly, I never, I never disliked a person enough to do it. I believe that most mental illness comes from a loss of tribal life, which could be called a circle of friends, and uh, unconnected to nature and unconnected to the arts. I mean, they say the average American watches five hours of TV a day. We don't have a TV. Mm. If I had a magic wand, there would be no TV. And so I'm, you know, the number one prescribed medicines are antidepressants. I don't believe depression is an illness. It's a symptom of loneliness, but you're not going to be able to sell a pill for loneliness. Are you familiar with the writer Andrew Solomon? That name rings a bell. I think I probably even have one of his books. That's a, that's a good possibility. He wrote... Um, it's kind of like an autobiography of sorts. The name escapes me right now, um, but the subtitle is An Atlas for Depression. And he shares some of his um, experience with depression and also some of his uh, theories about where depression comes from. And he has he has like a witty presentation, which is appealing to me. But the what you were saying there kind of reminded me of a quote that he said. And that quote is, the opposite of depression is not happiness, but is vitality. And... I think that is, you know, a, a big statement because we do think of, as a society think about um, depression as being the opposite of happiness. But it, I believe there's a lot of truth in what you said as far as uh, a lack of tribal uh, life, I believe is how you phrased it. And yeah, a, a lack of a circle of friends, that, it, that depression is loneliness. Yeah. One of the I'm lonely in a world of over 7 billion people. It's funny. Yeah. One of the main things or one of the uh, most common things that I use to treat uh, patients that come to me for symptoms of depression um, is I do I help them develop a, a social circle and help them reach out to friends that they haven't uh, reached out to in a long time or reconnect with people that they wish to have kept a connection with and uh, spend more time doing the things that make them happy, including spending time with other people. Because you're right, we're not we are a social species. We're not meant to be alone. Right. I do 
you know, speaking of human connection and things like that, there was uh, when my reading and research for this episode, I came across, I read your book, uh, Gesundheit. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, if you don't care. One of the things that was highlighted in that and on uh, the Gesundheit Institute's website is uh, you mentioned your relationship with your father and you mentioned him a little bit um, in the beginning when you were telling us about yourself uh, and about how his time in the war affected his ability to connect. And it sounds to me like that really influenced your view of connection and an attachment with others. So do you care to to kind of connect some dots there for us? You know, I can't really say I had a relationship with my father. He was away in World War II when I was born. I was born in 45. He was away in Korea. And he, when we were in Germany, we were in a place called Vogelfey, which was an American, the largest American base outside of the U.S. And yeah, basically, I knew him as a man who came home from work, filled his glass with Seagram Seven Crown, sat down and chain smoked cigarettes and read. My mother really was my parent. And I never saw her angry or nasty or lonely or any of those things. She was a vibrant, loving Virginia gal. Okay, yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. I know, you know, our, my training says our experiences with our family and those around us forms how we view relationships as a whole and kind of guides uh, what we want and what we need and desire within those relationships. And I look at some of your work and your outlook that you've shared with us so far, and I can kind of see, um, at least I, I think I can see how those types of relationships, the the distant relationship with your father and I, I I'm sorry to hear about that. That's, that's a really difficult thing to try to learn your way through as a child. He died. And that's... I was a drinker, smoker, quiet person. I mean, if I had a conversation with him, I would try to find out what he remembers about our relationship. Because I, I can't say I feel I had one with him. What do you think he would say to that question? I don't think he would know what to do. Part of what a lot of my questions that I had for you kind of stem from is that you've overcome so much. Uh, if you were to look at, you know, some other people who have been through similar struggles as you, and we all have our struggles, um, but some people... I, I, I stopped. I decided at 18 to never have another bad day, and I haven't had a bad day. I'm 76. So that's 58 years. That's impressive. That I, I mean, I was really not knowing how to be a man. Real man. I never was a real man growing up. And I was so glad when the hippies came along. I definitely saw that that's where I fit. That I could see that almost all the problems of history were due to manliness. And I didn't want to go there. So I've actually, since I was 18, have not been a person with problems. I like that. Yeah. I think a lot of people can learn from that. How do you, how do you well, achieve I, that? I make me. Okay, at 16, when we came back from dad dying and lived in the South, I couldn't believe segregation. Hatred for color. 
it was so shallow and stupid and I didn't fit in. And so three times at 17, I was hospitalized in the mental hospital and given antidepressants and none of it was useful for me. And then I was present at Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and I instantly mm. changed forever. Mm. That's when I decided to never have another bad day, that I would be six qualities, happy, funny, loving, cooperative, creative, and thoughtful. Mm. And based on that being your goal, from what I can tell, it's, it sounds like you're, you're killing it. You're mm -hmm. achieving that, those goals. It's very easy. You know, what I tell people is one option is you can make yourself exactly who you decide to be. I make me. I am the person I create. I choose a book I want to read. And do an exercise I want to do. I like, yeah, absolutely. Because something people really can learn from and, and benefit from just hearing that. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, because a lot of what we do, you mentioned fitting in that phrase several times already. And fitting in is something that a lot of people do strive to do, but it's hard to understand why sometimes if we take a step back and look, what's the purpose of fitting in? Because every large advancement that we've made as a society, uh, in medicine, in uh, our overall knowledge, in science, everything everything that we've done to take a step outside of where we already are comes from people who don't fit in. So I do think. Right. I don't fit into the idea of country. You know, I'm, I, I can't imagine that there are billionaires. It should be against the law. You know, rank, that's why at our hospital, the surgeon will make the same salary as the cleaning staff. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, I think Chelsea had some questions about uh, the hospital. Yeah, I want to really kind of give you a chance um, to have a little bit of a platform here and, and share a little more about the mission of um, Gesundheit, because I, I hate to even um, admit this, but I was... I actually was not familiar with you or your work um, until Jordan introduced me to it um, when planning this podcast. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to have, you know, learned about this. I don't actually, I don't usually participate, but um, after learning about you and when he said that you were going to be on here, he, he agreed to let me uh, jump in. But, you know, just kind of segueing off of that, um, and we talked briefly, you know, a little bit ago about contributing and donations. What can people do? And uh, maybe, you know, people who are going to be learning about Gesundheit for the first time through this podcast or in the future, you know, what contributions can they make to benefit the hospital? Well, contributions directly to the hospital is what I am. I am a fundraiser which is the word fun with a D. And so I've never not been a fundraiser. And I, I want funds. I, I don't understand it and it, it doesn't bother me. It's, it's the world we live in. You know, 
the fact that there are billionaires almost explains why we're not funded. Mm. And, and so I, you know, when you decide to be happy, funny, loving, you're playful with uh, patients, with uh, friends. And yeah, can you be more specific in what you'd like to know? Where can people go um, to donate? Well, if they use a computer, they can go to our website, patchadams.org. And when I stopped seeing patients, I was feeling a real disconnect from care. Mm. And so I agreed to answer all my mail. So I've answered more than 500,000 personal letters longhand. Wow. 130 countries. Wow. And I, I, uh, I'm pretty much caught up and, and I love it. It's amazing what people will say in a letter. Yeah. I also answer my phone. If people want to write me, they can write to 122 Franklin Street, Urbana, Illinois, 61801. Yeah. What about um, any volunteer opportunities? Is that something that is on the horizon? Uh, COVID, COVID has altered that to some degree, although I know the people, we have a great pair of people, Holly and Adam, who live there in West Virginia, and, and they have, we pretty much during this epidemic, we let them decide who becomes a visitor and, and who not, and, and they put them to work. It's, they don't really, it's not a healing center, it's a place to work. You see the gotcha, if you can move me, you can see one of the buildings we have built. Okay, yeah. And then just as a healthcare provider myself, um, you know, just kind of wanted to pick your brain, um, you know, what advice do you have um, to young providers going into medicine um, for how to overcome this stigma of, I need to make more money, I need to be, you know, top ranked, I need to run this department, I'm, you know, needing to constantly be the best and continue, you know, to try to be so ambitious, but how can they overcome that to bring this type of um, purity that you bring to medicine? Because you just don't see that in health. Well, I see it, I just don't participate in it. And this is really what I can tell people. You choose to be an arrogant doctor and treat a nurse like a lesser person. You, you do that. You spend four minutes with a patient and think you've done enough. So I do what delights me and uh, I'm a very friendly person. My longest hug was 12 hours. Oh my goodness. <laughs> And, and yeah. it wasn't boring. And sometimes people need something like that. And sure. that, you know, to be really open. 
the medical profession acts closed so many times that they yeah. don't see doctors and nurses as being equals. They give them different salaries. They give them different hierarchical uh, titles. Mm -hmm. And they assume that if there's a hierarchy that they don't have to do any of the dirty stuff and that sort of thing. And I like to, that if you don't decide pretty much all the time to be exactly who you decide to be, the society is more than happy to invent you in the form they would like you to be. Mm. So, I mean, in growing up, it, dating of heterosexual kind, it was obvious that men were dominant. And I can promise you, I cannot, you know, if, if with my partner, Susan, I was dominant, she'd leave me. <laughs> and, and I would want to be with somebody who would leave me because... Sure. I don't want to be dominant. You know, I, I, I want to listen for the job nobody wants to do and like doing those jobs. Mm. And so, and I think all of life is like that, that, that everywhere you go, you have an opportunity to think about what's going on or to be a robot. That's exactly right. That, yeah. The capitalist system wants you to be a robot. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, I have a, a couple of things you just said sparked some things in my brain. Um, <laughs> one of them being uh, whenever you were talking about the goal of having doctors and nurses operating, you know, as equals. I love I love that idea. But also, I think something that I've read um, uh, that I've read and that I've watched as far as kind of learning more about you is that not only are doctors and nurses equal in your book, but patients should be on that level as well. Um, and, yeah. And, a is a friend. Yes. I, um, I got to share this just because the stars aligned, but I went to the hospital to the emergency room on Thursday and had a really negative experience. I won't share which hospital, I won't share any names or anything like that, but you know, i I was there and I was trying to tell them what my complaints were and I felt like I wasn't listened to. Different people were in and out. Um, I don't even know half of their names. No one introduced themselves. No one offered me a pillow even. Um, and it was just, I spent less than three minutes with the doctor who said, we're just waiting on your uh, lab results to get back and we can get you out of here. And no one had even drawn my labs yet. So there was no, he was trying to get me out of there before there were even any results to go over. And at least that's how it felt to me. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, the more I've, I've shared that experience with people and there and other people will say that they've had the same experience. And it sounds like your institution is trying to break away from that and trying to treat patients with more dignity and respect. And I, I applaud that. I mean, that's yeah. patients are people. We're all people. All people are people. Exactly. Yeah. How is it that in a country of billionaires and of gross poverty, why is anyone hungry? Yeah. Why, it just, uh, human arrogance, the arrogance of capitalism, the hierarchy of capitalism, 
maleness, the history of male domination. I mean, mm -hmm. these are all destructive things to human relations. One thing I find most interesting um, after watching the movie, and I know you have your um, opinions about that as well, and absolutely. But one thing in reading the book and reading about you and just different articles and things online, um, a lot of your earlier, your younger behavior was viewed as defiant towards the, the medicine, the medical community and things like that, um, which brings about like a negative connotation. But it seems like it's negative because like what you were saying, it doesn't fit into that neat box that's already been built. Um, and less so that you're being combative. You're just, it sounds like you fight a lot for equality and equal understanding of our fellow humans. Well, it's more, I do it rather than fight. I, I'm not a, I'm not a fighter. I, you know, I'm, if somebody wants to threaten me, I fall on the ground and say, please don't hit me, you big bully. <laughs> With a little squeak of the nose. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I want a world where no one alive knows what the word war means. That would be, that would be magic. I cannot imagine that if they have food, that the person next to them could be a person without food. Yeah. That... Generosity, playfulness, all of those things are ways humans can enjoy themselves. Yeah. Makes such a big difference. Humans is overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Playfulness, you've touched on that a couple of times. And I think that I'm, I'm, by nature, I'm a very playful person. It doesn't always come across on the show because I'm, I'm usually nervous. <laughs> um, but as, as a person, I'm always joking and playing around and, just saying whatever's on my mind and you know, I, I try to be that way because there's no reason not to be um but playfulness really a lot of times feels frowned upon it feels like you're out of place being playful and it really shouldn't be that way well maybe that's why i do it <laughs> i like it i'm right there with you you know i'm not being playful to necessarily get along with how things are right playful because I'm a playful person exactly mm -hmm. and you choose to be right I mean if I this booger that I have in my left hand pocket you know is a long mucusy booger and I love to walk around you know just go on an elevator with it you know don't mention it and lots of fun things happen if you want a funny life put on a pair of tidy whiteies on your head <laughs> uh one of my that brings up i'll just be quick about this but um in whenever i was in grad school one of my classes uh challenged us one of our assignments was to challenge a social norm and it could be any social norm that we chose and that was one of my favorite assignments of all time and my the one that i chose was using the middle urinal in a men's restroom so what what my goal was for that assignment was to visit public restrooms and use the middle urinal with people on either side um just to to challenge to challenge that and to see what people's reactions would be and it didn't no one reacted if you were using the left one or the right one but if you use the middle one suddenly you got reactions and it mm. it is thinking outside the you know no one it, norms just kind of develop 
over time, but no one actually understands why sometimes. And uh, that was just, you know, some of the things you're saying just reminded me of that assignment. And I, I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, not, not necessarily just the bathroom stuff, but, you know, just the, the fact of challenging that to see why are we doing this in the first place? Why does it matter? Yes, I mean, I think actually our schools train us to try to not be thinkers, to be agreeers. I, 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 I am amazed at how few people think. Uh, I'll say that that, got, that did get me in a lot of trouble in school. <laughs> Anytime that I tried to challenge teachers and things like that, I wasn't always being defiant by any stretch, but you know, sometimes if you did ask questions and, and challenge the the general consensus of things, you, you are considered trying to, you know, disturb the waters and trying to cause issues. That's why I burp and fart socially. Yeah, I like it. Why do we have it's to hide those? Everything, fart, everyone does it. But burping, you have to develop. Because <laughs> farting, you just put your tongue between your lips and blow air out. <laughs> burp, you can't just open your mouth and burp. <laughs> you have to develop your burp. <laughs> nice. That's impressive. How long did it take you to master that? Too long ago for me to remember. <laughs> In closing, are there any um, stigmas or um, discrepancies that mostly with the movie, um, because I, I think that that's, you know, probably most people's um, representation of you. Anything that you would like to clear up about that? Anything that um, was not accurate that you would like to take the time to kind of expand on or clarify? I do more if people ask questions. Sure. You know, I encourage people to write me a letter and they can make a comment about the film. For me, the films are tame. I loved Robin. I lived in his house for 12 days and he's a wonderful person. He's an extreme introvert where I'm an extreme extrovert. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I thought the movie was a good introduction and it was not very comprehensive. Mm. Okay. I like that. So we can, so the listeners, if they have any specific questions, they can use the address that you provided earlier to write you a letter. Right. Okay. Um, uh, one other question that I had was, um, you know, your book, uh, Gesundheit, um, is where can uh, people purchase that? Okay, oh, I guess at a bookstore. <laughs> still in print good answer <laughs> i mean we have copies we have here's we have a second book called house calls okay oh, okay and i think we charge 20 and 15 for them okay great uh yeah and that's that's the reason I, the reason i asked is the copy that i have said that a portion of the proceeds go to to the gesundheit institute is that still is that still a fact I, you know, I'd like to be able to say definitely, but I don't know. 
right. Okay. It's not, it's not part of our work that I stay on top yeah. of. Mm, okay. I just wanted to make sure that if people are buying this book, that they go through the right, you know, the right channels to make sure that it's benefiting the Institute. Yeah. Well, ideas benefit us. Yeah. People use those ideas and talk about them. I mean, I'm fascinated how few people that write and say they love our work and they don't donate. I find it funny. And, you know, you keep a sense of humor. I really want to show this project in operation. So I'm going to keep at it until I go plop. And when do you expect it to be up and running? 40 years ago. And, you know, I don't know. Right now I have several people saying they think they can raise all of the funds. Mm -hmm. I, I go, great, yeah, baby, do it. Yeah. I mean, I would take money from Donald Trump to show you how low I would go. <laughs> and I, I uh, you know, we live in such an unhealthy male dominated world. Yeah. You know, we're just one of the animals, but we like act like we're the animal. Yeah. That the world revolves around us with our highways and airports and all sorts of things that uh, the rest of the animals and plants are, are what? But the feeling is, and the behavior of people is, is this is my state, this is my football team, this is mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Instead of the humility that we're just one of the beasts and we've done a huge amount of destroying. Yeah. And that, you know, if you want, if you ask me, Patch, what percentage of people do you think are mentally healthy? I would say I hope at least 10%. Mm. That yeah. I mean, when people say they're sad, they're really looking for an antidepressant when what they yeah. need is to hold the frog. Mm. I love that. Or climb a tree or go visit a friend and enjoy themselves. Yeah. So does that mean we're signing off? If you're ready to, then absolutely, sir. I appreciate your time. If I count to three, will we all make a fart sound? Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. One, two, three. <laughs> I couldn't see your mouth. Did you oh. make one? Oh. Okay. <laughs> Can we get one last burp for the road? <coughs> Amazing. <coughs> oh, there Three. you go. <laughs> I must have had a beer before I came on. <laughs> Sounds like it. Well, so, sir. Thank you. And please tell your friends from what you've heard and don't lie, do you think? people listening would be doing a good thing to donate to us? 
Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I think, you know, like you said earlier, if you ask people if we should have free health care and should have, you know, a better health care system with better providers or more involved providers, and they'd say, yes, this is a way to do that. This is a way to achieve that by making donations and contributions. Let's do it in action. Yeah, absolutely. So have fun and whoopee whoopee. Always. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much. I don't know how to turn you off because I chose never to learn how to use a computer or a smartphone. We'll take care of that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have fun. This has been another episode of Best Virginia Podcast, created and hosted by me, Jordan Mitchell, featuring special guest Patch Adams and featuring music by 18 Strings. As always, thanks for listening. Stay wild, stay weird, and stay wonderful.